Welcome to AZPM News Daily, a recap of all the day's news from Arizona Public Media. I'm Steve Jess. And starting us off this week, county officials are feeling the strain of dealing with more migrants arriving. Governor Hobbs asks the president for help on the border. And a major abortion case goes before the state's high court. Topping our news today, Pima County assisted a record number of migrants in November, nearly 34,000. The surge is depleting resources faster than expected, continuing fears that migrants may end up being left unsheltered in cities overnight. Danielle Kamara has more. The ongoing surge of migrants in Border Patrol's Tucson sector, many hoping to seek asylum, is forcing the county to switch to a different federal funding source ahead of schedule. The new source comes with limits on the number of hotel rooms that can be reimbursed, as well as the amount of transportation resources available. The state Department of Emergency and Military Affairs took over transportation costs at the beginning of the month, helping the county continue to assist record high numbers of people. But even with the latest round of federal funding, a burn rate of about $3.5 million a month would deplete the money by the end of February. I'm Danielle Kamara, AZPM News. Governor Katie Hobbs visited the border over the weekend. She asked the Biden administration to use the National Guard to reopen the Lukeville port of entry and announced a new operation to coordinate local, state, and federal border efforts. Hobbs is asking for 243 National Guard members in the region to be used to reopen the Lukeville port of entry, which was closed last week, to move a couple dozen personnel there to assist Border Patrol with an influx of migrants. She also asked to be reimbursed for more than $500 million spent on border operations. Hobbs toured the Lukeville port of entry on Saturday. This week, I sent a letter to President Biden demanding the resources and manpower to open this port of entry. And we announced Operation Secure to step up state support for local law enforcement. The operation will be funded with $2 million from the American Rescue Plan. Hobbs also said another $5 million from the state toward the National Guard is a possibility. The Arizona Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in a case that will determine whether abortions up to the 15th week of pregnancy will remain legal in Arizona, or if a near-total ban from a different era takes precedence. The state's highest court may not have the last word on the issue, as we hear in this in-depth report from Paula Rodriguez. The case Planned Parenthood versus Mays Hazelrig is set to be heard tomorrow morning by the Arizona Supreme Court. The question of the case, which of two Arizona abortion laws governs? A law passed last year that allows the procedure through the 15th week of pregnancy, or a much older law that effectively bans all abortions unless the life of a pregnant person is at risk. UA law professor Barbara Atwood says last year the legislature prohibited abortions past 15 weeks gestation. But when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, then Attorney General Mark Brnovich acted to reinstate a near-total ban that was still on the books after a century and a half. Atwood says it dates from 1864 and reflects the values of its time on abortion and other issues. You would also find prohibitions on marriage between white people and uh, various categories of people of color. And, you know, at that point, of course, women did not serve on juries. I mean, it's from an era that we today look at as pretty backwards thinking, frankly. 
Once the injunction from the 1970s was lifted, Arizona had both a near-total ban on abortion in effect as well as a 15-week gestation law, creating confusion for both providers and patients. Atwood says the intervener, the Yavapai County attorney, and Dr. Eric Hazelrig claim the two laws do not conflict. One of the arguments is that the 15-week law as well as other abortion regulations in this state don't actually permit abortion. They just say when abortion is prohibited. So there's not really a permission of abortion. Unlike many pieces of legislation, the 15-week ban passed last year doesn't explicitly repeal the total ban from 1864. So both laws are in effect, even though they conflict. Last year, the Arizona Court of Appeals sided with Planned Parenthood, saying the application of the near-total ban should be limited. The way that they came up with to make sense of the both laws was to give that old law effect, but only a segment of the population that is prohibited from performing abortions under the old and the new law, and that is not licensed physicians. Now the issue of harmonizing the two laws is back to the courts, but this time with a six-judge panel instead of its normal seven, after one judge recused himself, which could risk a 3-3 tie vote. In that case, the Court of Appeals decision would be upheld. But will this case ever make it to the U.S. Supreme Court? Atwood says the Supreme Court would have to decide that it deals with a federal issue rather than state law. If there's a state of chaos in the state where they might be criminally prosecuted for behavior that is unlawful under the territorial ban, but lawful under the 15-week ban or other regulations in Arizona, they have a strong argument that that's a violation of their constitutional right to fair notice about what criminal penalties might be out there. The Arizona Supreme Court isn't expected to rule on the case until next year. Until then, patients can seek abortion services until 15 weeks gestation. I'm Paola Rodriguez, AZPM News. The University of Arizona's College of Public Health received over $3 million from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to fund research that examines the cross-section between climate change response and public health. Katya Mendoza tells us more. The grant will support the Southwest Center on Resilience for Climate Change and Health, known as SCORCH, to help communities address climate-driven health threats. UA professor Casey Ernst, one of three faculty leads with the project, says it's important to focus on historically marginalized communities to build resilience against the compounding effects of climate change. You need to have resources in place to be able to help quickly respond quickly recover and reduce that damage as much as possible. Ernst says the center is in its planning phase and looks to become a hub for climate change and health activity on campus. I'm Katia Mendoza, AZPM News. The University of Arizona is part of a debate among schools over the best place in the country to study space science. We hear more on that from Tony Perkins. A survey ranking colleges and universities that receive the most research funds from NASA shows the University of Arizona sixth behind institutions including Johns Hopkins University and Cal Berkeley. But Arizona Department of Astronomy head Buell Januzzi notes a list of schools ranked solely by higher education research and development spending for astronomy and astrophysics puts the U of A on top. We also make 
and develop the technology and the facilities that enable the science. And that's not common. The California Institute of Technology topped the NASA list, helped by its association with the agency's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Sports fans argue the University of Houston and the University of Central Florida deserve the honor. Both schools belong to the same athletic conference, and each boasts historic ties to the U.S. manned space program. I'm Tony Perkins, AZPM News. The governor's Educator Retention Task Force wrapped up its work last week when it released its final recommendations for keeping teachers on the job in Arizona. Republican State Senator Ken Bennett talked about a proposal to raise teacher pay by $4,000. But Marisol Garcia, president of the Arizona Education Association, says reaching the national average of $66,000 would mean giving Arizona teachers a $10,000 raise. Creating paid parental leave for teachers also emerged as a clear priority. Garcia says the lack of any parental leave adds to the strain from a shortage of substitutes and growing class sizes in Arizona. The biggest names in Western Water will be gathering under one roof in Las Vegas this week to discuss the future of the Colorado River. From KUNC Radio in Colorado, Alex Hager spoke with leaders from around the region to get a sense of their priorities ahead of this annual event. Last winter brought a lot of snow to the Rockies. When it all melted, it was a big boost for the Colorado River's main reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. It was also a temporary weight off the shoulders of the decision makers going to this year's conference. I think where we are heading into this one is fortunately not much to really get too excitable about, uh, which is a nice thing. J.B. Hamby is California's top water negotiator. The past few years, he and other policymakers have had to work quickly on short-term deals that kept water in those reservoirs. Now they've got the space to focus on something bigger, long-term rules for sharing the river when the current guidelines expire in a few years. Now we have a open runway to figure out post-2026 with a much uh, lowered temperature and clearer heads. The conference also gives a chance for native tribes to make their voices heard in those negotiations. After a long history of exclusion, they're starting to have more say in conversations about water management. Lorelai Cloud, acting chairman of the Southern Ute Indian Tribe, says that needs to go further. We want our participation to be institutionalized. That is going to be key. Cloud says she wants more formalized seats at the table for tribes going forward, seats that last through changes in administration. She'll be using the Vegas conference to push for that and to share the stories of people from her tribe who struggle to access water. And help other people to understand what our people go through to get water in their home or to have water on a daily basis. That's my duty as a tribal leader, to make those personal connections. The seven states that use the river, they'll also be trying to win over hearts and minds and make their case that the new set of river management rules shouldn't cut too hard into their share of water. Becky Mitchell is Colorado's top water negotiator. It seems like my constant challenges is making sure that we're understood in the upper basin. Mitchell says Colorado and its upper basin partners, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, they feel the sting first when the Colorado River goes through a dry year. And she wants to tell the stories of farmers and ranchers who feel it the most. 
my next week is going to be spent figuring out how do I tell these stories so that they resonate beyond Colorado. While leaders across the basin work to garner good press and get closer to a long-term deal, the state of the nation's largest reservoirs is still pretty dire. Jack Schmidt directs the Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University. We have to be saving water at a much higher rate than we are now. Last spring, when snow started to melt, the word on everyone's lips was squander. As in, don't squander the snowy boost from Mother Nature. So how are the region's water leaders doing when it comes to that goal? Schmidt says, not great. As we listen to the agreements, you would think that our rate of consumption was significantly less than it had ever been after any other wet year. And that is not the case. How exactly to make long-term cuts to water use will be at the center of the upcoming talks in Las Vegas. Vanitha Kartha is with the Central Arizona Project. We are all at the cusp of potentially new ideas, innovative ideas going forward. Kartha says that could mean new ways of measuring how much water is in the river or distributing cutbacks. Whatever ideas shape the next set of river guidelines, she says, it'll take everyone pitching in. I always tell my kids many hands make light work. It's the same thing here. Even in the middle of contentious talks with no clear solution, Kartha says she's optimistic because pretty much everyone agrees on the scale of the problem. Climate change is shrinking supply, and the people in charge need to cut back on demand. I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Southern Arizona's economy remains solid going into the last few weeks of 2023. University of Arizona economist George Hammond directs the university's Economic and Business Research Center. He points to a broadly healthy job market as a key factor. Trade, transportation, utilities jobs, they're way up. Financial activities jobs, so bankers, insurance agents, real estate agents, those jobs are up. Manufacturing jobs are up by about 2,000, and that's really good news because those are high-paying jobs. Construction jobs are up by about 2,000, and some other sectors are basically in the neighborhood. Some economists expect a mild recession in 2024, but they also say there are lots of factors that could change and end up preventing a recession. One key problem facing the economy is the high cost of housing. A grand jury has indicted a former Arizona State University employee on 14 felonies after the Arizona Auditor General found evidence he embezzled nearly $125,000. The report alleges that Carlos Urea, a former manager of information technology at ASU, used his university-issued credit card to make personal purchases between April 2017 and December 2021, including two Christmas trees, 12 gaming consoles, 10 smartwatches, and 11 Costco gift cards worth $1,000 apiece. The Arizona Division of Occupational Safety and Health has gone through its second director in the past three months. Mark Norton stepped away from the job after he replaced the former director. A spokesperson with the Industrial Commission of Arizona says Norton has now been replaced by Phil Murphy on an interim basis. Previously, he served as an assistant director of compliance for the division, which oversees workplace safety. The AND Gallery on Tucson's 4th Avenue displayed posters from all around the world at the December Street Fair this weekend as Tucson artists came together to express their support for Palestine. Hannah Cree has more on the exhibition. 
Tucson artist and community organizer Harry Carlson says the Artists Against Apartheid's exhibit is a peaceful and powerful way to show support. Being able to connect to people through different mediums, through a visual medium, through music, through dance, through whatever type of art is essential. And I think that is another way to be inclusive and not just have it be a political idea, but a universal and world idea. Artists Against Apartheid is an international coalition of creatives under the People's Forum, a New York-based nonprofit. Their collection of posters is being displayed all around the world to show solidarity for the people of Gaza. The event comes shortly after the U.S. vetoed a U.N. proposal for a humanitarian ceasefire. I'm Hannah Curry, AZPM News. And that'll catch you up on everything we've covered today at Arizona Public Media. Thanks for listening. When you can't catch our on-air newscasts, you can always get the news here. Make sure to subscribe to the AZPM News Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Steve Jess. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.